The following lecture was delivered at the 15th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Atlanta, Georgia, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson now presents his lecture, Saving Our Relationships from Ourselves. Often, people open up lectures about marriage, relationships, connections between people, saving ourselves from relationships, cracks in a marriage, dysfunctional marriages, repairing marriages, divorced culture of divorce. They often open up these lectures with approximately 10 or 20 jokes, which gets them through the first half an hour. At the end, hopefully you'll hear an insight or two or three, or not. And it really works because the best Jewish jokes that have been written are about marriage. And there's a reason for it. There's basically, from my experience, there are 350 Jewish jokes in total. Rabbi Goldman said many of them yesterday. But there's basically 350, okay? A hundred of them are about marriages. That includes your husband, your wife, your mother-in-law, of course, your father-in-law, and all the mechotanim. There's another hundred about rabbis, clergy, <laughs> that's another important, doctors, lawyers, you know, that's another hundred. And then finally you have a very significant amount about food, that's a very important aspect in Jewish humor, and then finally you have all the jokes connected to theology and God and faith and religion. And we recite, those of us in the, in the robe, in the uniform, we recycle these 350 jokes. Once in a while, somebody comes up with a new one. But uh, I'm going to skip that part, okay? With your forgiveness, I'm going to skip that part. I'm going to go straight. Uh, those of you who have been at the retreat earlier years, we did some good humor on marriage. Some of them went viral on the websites. But today, we're going to go straight to the point. People often ask, why is it that divorce is rising significantly, and I'm talking about within the Jewish community, and even within the religious community. So it's not a discussion of why a culture of divorce has been created in the secular world. The reasons for that have been discussed for the last few decades, and are probably quite obvious. But I'm talking about the divorce rate within the Jewish community, which is significantly less, especially within the religious community, which is truly significantly less, which attests to something that is very powerful within Jewish tradition, Jewish culture, Jewish religion, Jewish family life, Jewish faith. Um, you're talking about a divorce rate in the general culture that could sometimes be 40%, 50%, 60%. In the Jewish community, especially in the observant Jewish community, that builds homes based on the values of Torah and mitzvahs, it's really significantly less. So people often tell me, of course, because religious women are oppressed. <laughs> They're afraid to get divorced. They can't get a job. They can't support themselves. There is also social conformity in the Orthodox community. There's also terrible phobias. Everybody looks at you, oh, you're divorced. You're from the broken family. That's the reason there is less divorce. It's not a compliment. It's because of women being second-class citizens. And I tell them, sure, meet my mother-in-law, meet my mother, meet my wife. <laughs> I don't know which, you, which women you're hanging out with. I know the women I hang out with. <laughs> the woman I hang out with, I stand corrected. 
but some of the women who have mentored me along the way, like mother and mother-in-law, et cetera, sisters, sisters-in-law. And so, fine. I mean, if you believe that that's really the entire reason for the disparity, so be it. <laughs> I, I'm not a lab guy, and I don't have the statistical evidence, and I haven't done a, you know, Pew Research interviewing three and a half thousand uh, Jewish couples. But I think anybody with a little intellectual honesty and intelligence probably realizes that when you have such large disparity and you know very well what's going on, that a tremendous amount of it has to do with the fact that Jewish life, Yiddishkeit, institutions like Shabbos, like mikvah, like holiness, the sacredness of marriage, the sacredness of family, such types of institutions that have molded the Jewish people for close to 4,000 years are an extraordinary asset, not just an asset, a tremendous foundation for a much more viable marriage. This does not mean that religious people have great marriages by definition. It's not enough. If people are mentioned and they want to work on themselves and they want to create a blossoming marriage, the infrastructure of Judaism and the lifestyle of Judaism is extremely conducive and helpful as a divine blueprint to make it far more enduring, meaningful, and even romantic and inspiring. And yet, despite all of this, in recent years, especially in the last five years, when I say recent years, I don't mean 60 years. I mean literally in the last few years, within the Orthodox community, even within the Orthodox community, certainly in other communities, the divorce rate has risen and quite significantly. I don't have exact statistics, I'm sorry, but I think I have enough anecdotal evidence from interactions with, uh, I would say, hundreds of Jewish communities and conversations with people and emails and hearing from many therapists and rabbis who deal with this that it has significantly risen. You probably see it within your own neighborhoods or your own communities, so you don't have to look far. What's the reason for this? There are probably many reasons, but I want to point out two reasons. I am not giving judgment on these reasons. I'm not saying they're good or they're bad. But I think it's important not to bury your hand, head in sand and ignore these reasons. Point number one is people today, whether we endorse it or don't endorse it, are not ready to suffer in ways that they suffered in the past. In other words, in the past, I may have been in a miserable marriage, or somebody may have been in a miserable marriage, a man and a woman, or one of them, or both of them, usually if one is miserable, very hard for the other one not to, although it could happen sometimes. And part of life was you put one foot, what did they tell you? You put one foot ahead of the other foot, and you move on. You smile at the bar mitzvah, and you're suffering stays inside. Today, much less people are ready to do that. Some are. Some are told they should do it. But so many are just not ready. Like, I want a better life. <laughs> I want a happier life. I want to come home to a relaxed atmosphere. I want to be able to look into the eyes of somebody and feel trust and feel camaraderie. I do not want to clinch my teeth for the next 72 years, or whatever the number is, till 120. They would say to the two Jewish women who went out to a restaurant, and they were eating, and one of them tells the other one and says, you know, the portions here 
are horrible. Generally, the food in this restaurant has become disastrous. It's like you can't eat it. I'm, I'm nauseous. And the other woman says, you're completely right. And also the portions are so small. <laughs> As the great Kabbalist Woody Allen once said, you know, life is so miserable and life is so filled with trauma and suffering. And it's also so short. So... <laughs> If you want to complain, there's always what to complain about. So, that's number one. It's important to understand this. Now, many people get very upset about this. Since when did happiness become a value? Who worships happiness? We used to worship God. <laughs> we used to worship religion. We used to worship the institution of marriage. We used to worship the family looking good, not you feeling good. I understand this sentiment very, very well. I've heard it from many people. I still hear it from people. There are people who come over to me almost after every single lecture I get or an email I receive protesting against the nature of the presentations which focus on self-actualization, self-affirmation or Friday, self-love, rather than self-nullification, which is the real authentic Jewish value. So I understand the sentiment very well. And, and there's also a very profound truth to that. And the profound truth to that is that if my only parameter in life is what feels good at the moment, I can actually become so blinded and so biased and so carried away by a contemporary, uh, by a present feeling of happiness or despair that can actually make me make decisions that will prove sometimes disastrous or even catastrophic to my life. Which is why it's important for a person to have absolute values that transcend my moods at any given moment. Saying that though, and not judging one or another, the fact is that to tell people, disregard your feelings, disregard your emotions, I just find it to be disastrous. I find it to be ineffective, People have done it with their children now for many years, and I don't see the blessed results. I want to say something more. We are now in the era of Geula. Geula consciousness is about integration with emotions. It's not about the negation of self. You know, in Judaism, one of the greatest tensions is between the ego and God. It's called in Kabbalistic Hasidic lexicon, Bittel versus Yesh. Bittel means alignment with the infinite source. That's the healthy translation. Yesh is detachment, the substitute for the infinite source, the ego. Ego as an acronym of easing God out. And this tension between separation and attachment. But the ultimate of everything is in the language of one of the greatest mystics, the Mittler Rebbe, Rabbi Doiv Ber, the son of the Balatanya, who says, the ultimate realization of life is when the Yesh HaNivra realizes it is a mirror of the Yesh HaMiti, which in simple English means when the I realizes that it's simply a continuum and a mirror of the ultimate I, the divine I. So the ultimate consciousness of redemption consciousness versus exile consciousness is full integration. It's where the ultimate truth 
is integrated within my personality, within my feelings, within my heart, within my mind, within my soul. And that's what people are really yearning for. This is not an expression of narcissism and selfishness, although it could be sometimes, and then you have to put yourself in your place or have somebody put you in your place, a good friend or confidant or mentor. But this is really about the search for ultimate holistic integration. And that's, I think, one of the deeper reasons why people simply feel, I'm not supposed to be miserable. <laughs> I know I felt that way for many years, but it's really not a mitzvah. <laughs> it's not a mitzvah. It, it sometimes feels like, you know, somebody once said there's a reason that Jewish mothers don't drink. It shouldn't interfere with their suffering. <laughs> we want things to interfere with the suffering, but not alcohol and not cheesecake. What you want to interfere with your suffering is an awareness of how infinite you are. That's what you want to interfere with your suffering. That's the consciousness of redemption. There's something else that's causing a rise in divorce, I think, an extension of number one, and that is awareness of certain realities that there simply was not part of. For example, I once went into my grandmother's home. I spoke about her Friday night. She was really a holy woman. And I asked her, I was, I was a teenager, I was struggling with certain things. I said, Baba, are you a happy person? She looked at me, and I realized just she didn't even understand my question. <laughs> she didn't answer me, yes, no, she didn't get into a debate. It was like, since when is that part of being a person? And it's an important understanding. For so many years, the reality of emotions couldn't be part of reality. And not anybody's fault, on the contrary. Maybe we ought to be thankful to them because that's how they could survive. Suffering that we can't even conceive of. Can I tell people today that happiness or emotions are not part of your life's equation? Would that be fear? Would that be normal? Would that be honest? Can I ignore teenagers who tell me, my father told me that if I continue on this path, I'm going to die. I'm going to kill myself. He doesn't understand that would be a blessing. I didn't hear this from one person. So to tell them, oh, ignore all your emotions. Just do what your father said. <laughs> I would be living in a different planet from these people. So for all the people who say, tell your kids, tell yourself, stop feeling. Feelings are irrelevant. Serve God. <laughs> they mean well. <laughs> they completely, I'm sure they mean well. But I would love for each of them to read just 20% of the emails I receive daily or to go to conferences or groups, or recovery groups, or therapy groups, where you have dozens and dozens of young women and men sharing what is going on in themselves to the point that they feel so broken, so devastated. And if I can't address that, and I can't look into their eyes and speak to their heart and help them heal through the various many methods that exist today, 
including quite progressive and revolutionary methods, but beyond the realm of our lecture, I am failing them. And if I blame God on it, it's even a worse crime. Because the definition of God in my book is the infinite love that must embrace every single human being in his or her totality. A new vocabulary has developed, which again, we may be very critical of, and maybe justifiably, but that new vocabulary includes things like serenity, tranquility, transcending anxiety, healing from trauma, identifying my pain and trying to deal with it, getting out of pain through pain, healing my brokenness, finding the divine wholeness within my brokenness. When this vocabulary develops, there's no going back. And I don't think it's all bad. It could sometimes lead people down the wrong path. As I told you, I think it's part of Geula consciousness, which is about wholeness and healing the brokenness of exile. And that's what we're searching for. And that's good news. And that's amazing news. And you see that when people hear this, they all come to life. <laughs> because they're searching for it. They're yearning for it. So when you tell somebody, just go on with your marriage. <laughs> but I'm miserable. I'm broken. There's something so off. What they're really saying is, I want a Gula marriage. I don't want a Gullus marriage. <laughs> I don't want a marriage in which I'm estranged from my spouse, but I'm just doing it because this is what we do. We're tenacious. We're stubborn. Jewish continuity. We take revenge from Hitler, Eichmann, Rosenberg, Himmler, and Mengele daily. I know that. I have given those speeches. <laughs> We've been down that road, and it's important. It's important. We do take revenge from Hitler on a daily basis. That's true. But that's not enough to make your marriage blossom. <laughs> it's not enough. You want a redemptive marriage. We want, a re we want redemptive relationships. Redemptive relationships means relationships that are truly deep, authentic, meaningful, vulnerable, powerful, electrifying, and peaceful. Now that sounds like a contradiction. That's the fire and water contradiction. You want electricity and you want peace, and the Torah solution for that was two weeks fire, two weeks water. You could figure that out. So, the next few moments, what I want to go do is the next step. And that is just give really a few pointers that I think can help us open ourselves up to these larger possibilities. This is a subject obviously we can talk about for a few days, for a few weeks, and really for a few decades, maybe centuries. Because relationships is the code, it's the DNA of the secret of existence. Why did God create the world? God was a perfect bachelor. He had everything. Beautiful homes, beautiful private yachts, beautiful private planes, receptions on the beach. The only thing God was missing was a spouse. He wanted to get married. He was alone. So creation of the world was an act of marriage. And we're still trying to figure out that marriage. So I say it's something you can explore for a few centuries, a few millennia. But I want to open up our vistas to this possibility 
I, I just, this, this thought really just came in the middle of the lecture. I, I, didn't, I, I had some notes here, but I didn't plan this phrase. There's geula marriages versus gullus marriages. Gullus marriages are marriages, but they're in the paradigm of exile. We feel subjugated, we feel forced, we feel coerced. And there are moments in life when, yes, I feel subjugated and I have to do the right thing. It's very important. A soldier is a soldier when he's in the mood of it, when he's not in the mood of it. A geula marriage takes all that and says, but I want to really be able to be here with my essence. I want to be present fully. I want to be alive. I don't want to be half numb, half dead, half asleep, half drained. I want to be alive. But that's a serious level, and some people may be sitting here and thinking, who is he talking about? Who has such a marriage? I mean, we're going away on vacations and more vacations and more vacations and more vacations. And a lot of that is because we look for actions to distract ourselves a little bit. But I think that if we really uh, help people, and we all need help with this. You can't do this on your own. But we really help. The Talmud says a prisoner cannot liberate himself from his shackles. We need help. But we need help from the right people. Whenever you go for help, and this is very important in marriage counseling, you have to know some therapists are awesome. Some of them are fine. And some of them are whatever. Right? It's just like doctors. <laughs> just like rabbis. And you have to know this. And ultimately, you are the one who has to call the shots. Don't surrender your life to a therapist, to a coach to a marriage counselor, it doesn't happen. If after six months, three months, two months, there's no change, there's no more awareness, something is wrong. It's like the doctor who was brilliant, but very arrogant, unfortunately. And my mother asks him, my father was six, my mother says to him, I really want a second opinion. So the doctor says, I'll tell you when you need a second opinion. <laughs> you like that? <laughs> My mother took my father out of that doctor's care the next day. <laughs> I'll tell you when you need a second opinion. That's not a second opinion. You have to be informed. You have to be an educated person in the sense of really taking responsibility for your life, for our life, for my life. This is so important. It's also upsetting when people give advice to one spouse without even knowing the other spouse. They give diagnoses for women, for men. Oh, he must have narcissistic personality disorder. Really? You never even spoke to him. <laughs> She's in a lot of pain. She described certain things about him from her perspective. I get it. Yeah. She must have borderline personality. You never even met her. How do you give a diagnosis? Even after you meet somebody, it's not so simple to put somebody into a box. When it comes to marriage advice, humility is the prerequisite for everything. Really tuning in to who this person is, to who this person is, and helping them work together. There's also this, uh, this idea of some people that women are supposed to make themselves happy, irrelevant of their husbands. The other way, nobody even suggests it, because it can't happen. But, uh, <laughs> but there's this whole thing of, you know, you be, your husband is miserable and he's obnoxious and he's impossible and he's rude and he's demanding and all the nice adjectives they like to say about some men. 
present company excluded, you men have been wonderful. The Shabbos, I saw how you stood in line for hours getting sushi for your wives as your wife sat at their tables and just meditated. <laughs> meditated on when the sushi will at last arrive, of course. We're talking about a Jewish meditation. I'm not talking about, not talking about Buddhist meditation about uh, one and all and all in one. Just a little humor, don't get so upset at me. So, I just got, uh, I just forgot what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so the other day, somebody, we did a Zoom in California, 2,000 women about marriage. It was just exclusively women. So, uh, I don't know why they had me on, but whatever. <laughs> I would make a joke about that, but it's not for here. So, this, uh, so the person saying, Rabbi Jacobson, tell all the women, isn't it true that all of marriage depends on the woman? The man is irrelevant. Who cares what he's like? You can make the marriage work and bless. I'm like, forgive me. This you say in last resort, in desperation. If God forbid there's a situation where the man is not interested, he's too blocked. There's too much trauma, there's too much pain, he's isolated, whatever it is, he's a, too much addicted. Then the question is, if you choose to stay married, and it may be the best choice for you, which everyone has to make in their life, you have to figure out how to live the best life possible. But that's not the road that we embrace. A man is irrelevant in the marriage. The road we embrace is, if you have a man and a woman to speak to, to connect to, we want to bring them together face to face and work with them together. Together is the point. That's what it's all about. The first thing the Torah says is not good. What's the first thing Torah says is not good? You would think the first thing Torah should say is not good is idolatry, maybe adultery, maybe murder, maybe sinning. The first thing the Torah says is not good. Is what? Lo tov adam levado. It's not good for Adam to be alone. In other words, attachment, attachment, attachment. The first thing Torah defines as not good is when you don't have attachment, when you're not connected. This was written more than 3,300 years ago, in Parshas Bereshis. Cutting edge psychology today is that attachment is at the core of so much. People who had healthy attachment can live a different life. People who have had unhealthy attachment or no attachment at all struggle, and we have to find that in our lives later on. As King David says in Psalm 27, my father and mother have abandoned me. But God has embraced me. Not an easy journey. Not an easy journey. But a powerful one. And a possible one. And one with hope, not with despair. It's together. So here are a few points that I hope we can internalize in our consciousness to begin this journey. Number one. Imagine a cheetah or a tiger or a lion has left the Atlanta Zoo and decided to attend the National Jewish Retreat. God forbid, yeah. And the lion walks in right here into this room, right? And some of you panic. And Rabbi YY will get up here and say, Chevre, Chevre, we're going to do a guided meditation now. Doesn't it say in Tanya, Mayach Shalat al Halev? The brain rules the heart. Let not your heart rule the situation. 
Let your cerebral brain rule the situation. The lion is here, let's meditate. All the lion is looking for is food. But there's plenty of food in the tea room. There's also plenty of food in the dining room. So I'm sure the lion will smell the coffee, pun intended, in Starbucks, Chal of Yisrael, and go get it. Furthermore, the lion has a heart, the lion has cubs, or the lioness has cubs. And generally, don't let other people or animals define your mood. You really have to own your emotions. What would you tell me if I did that? I'm a shigane, yeah? And suicidal, right? And maybe guilty of murder, yeah? What's the right thing to do? Huh? Run. <laughs> it's called run. Do you get my point? So I'll tell you, your emotion. come on, your emotions are just emotions. We're learning Torah. We're talking about marriage. And you're like, this guy is Meshiga. In yeshiva, there was a guy who would say, this guy is FGM, Frisch Gesint Meshiga. This was his acronym. Why? Because your amygdala takes over. <laughs> In the neuroscience, you have the amygdala, which is basically, they call it the reptilian brain. The reptilian brain is that part of the brain that literally behaves like a reptile. <laughs> In Tanya, it's called the Nefesh Bahamas, the animal consciousness. And the animal consciousness is focused on flight or fight. Either you fight if you're Samson, or you flight, or you do something else. But it's not a moment of prefrontal cortex development. We're simply not in that moment. The fire alarm went off. The amygdala sounding an alarm. Danger, there's a lion in the room, there's a lion in the room. I can't hear, I can't listen, I can't meditate, I can't reflect. Thank God I can't. There's a fire burning, I have to run, I have to scream, I have to holler. The amygdala is functioning now. There's the limbic brain. There's the prefrontal cortex. Do you realize that for some people, that amygdala is sounding the alarm very often that there's a lion in the room, even if there's no lion in the room? This is the truth about many people. So you're trying to talk to them to explain there is a lion in the room. No, there's no lion in the room. But based on my life experience, there's a lion in the room. If you do not have awareness of this part of you, if I do not have awareness of this part of myself, I will forever be in prison. Here's the rule. Your wife said something to you yesterday at the Shabbos table, maybe this morning. Your husband said something to you, maybe just walking into this lecture. He may say something to you after the lecture, which is like he was talking about you. And your wife would say, really? He was actually looking at you most of the time. Don't you know that? Don't you know that? You know how people imagine that, right? <laughs> I'll never forget, a woman used to come to my weekly classes back in Brooklyn, and I didn't see her for two years. She just disappeared. After two years, I meet her. And I'm like, what happened to you? She said, since you insulted me in public and never apologized, I never returned. I'm like, OMG. I said, 
what? She's like, don't make believe you don't know when you insulted me in public and for two years I cannot look at your face. So again, my reptilian brain is like, you know, ma'am, get a life. Get a life and you don't have to come back. It's fine. But that was my own amygdala, right? My own fire alarm. There's a lion, right? She's attacking me. I'm bad. I humiliate people in public. Uh, there's going to be a WhatsApp about it. I took a deep breath, and I said, I really don't know what happened. She said, I don't believe you. I said, okay, if you don't believe me, I'm sorry, but I really don't know. Maybe you want to share with me so I could learn from it. So she told me two years ago, you were talking about discipline when it comes to eating. Because I love talking about things that I live by. <laughs> we were actually learning Tanya chapter 7 where he talks about discipline when it comes to food. Not living in order to eat, but eating in order to live. It's, it's not a contemporary Jewish concept, but it used to be a Jewish concept that you, you eat to live, you don't live to eat. By us it's the other way around, right? The lectures revolve around the meals, the meals don't revolve around the lectures. That's the fact. When they make the retreat, they don't ask first who's going to talk. They ask who's the caterer. You can ask them. You ask Rabbi Mintz, he'll tell you. Once we've established who the caterer is, okay, let's bring in Rabbi Weirat, and another few people to fill the gaps between breakfast, lunch, and dinner. What are they going to do? Golf? But it's filling the gaps. But in Tanya, he actually talks about the fact that you got to eat in order to live. Right? So I was talking about that. And she says, and you were staring at me. Which means everybody knows you were embarrassing me because I'm a little overweight. So for two years, she didn't show up. It was such a lesson to me about what I could control, what I can't control. I didn't tell myself I'm not going to look at people when I speak anymore. It's not going to work for me. I need to see the people, get their energy, get the feedback, etc. It's one of the challenges with Zoom. We say, gam Zoom letoiva, but it's not the same. But what people are experiencing may be completely different than what's happening. So your husband just told you something, your wife just told you something, you are so triggered. You are so angry, you are so upset. You may react in different ways, you may explode, you may implode. You may space out and detach because you're a nice guy. You don't like to scream, so you detach emotionally. But what just happened? What just happened is you're telling yourself, my wife is X, Y, my wife is this and this and this, and my husband is this and this and this. Could you stop and say, ask not what your spouse is. Can you tune into yourself and become aware of what is going on for you right here at this moment? If you do this exercise for 60 days, your neural pathways will change. And afterwards it will become easier. Literally, there will be a change in your brain because our neural pathways are developed by the way we think about things. Self-awareness is so profound. It's so important. It's not judging the other, and it's also not judging yourself. Don't scream at yourself for feeling there's a lion in the room. That's also the lion in the room, that you have to scream at yourself. I'm such an idiot. I'm such a shaita. I'm a loser. I'm a nerd. I'm a miserable, depressed, traumatized loser for life. That's the same lion in your room. Respect it. Have compassion for it. 
look at it, you can cry with it. But remember, it's not about what your wife said. It's not about what your husband said. It's so important to be able to go to that space because that's where healing will come from. Awareness of the triggers and awareness of how profound those triggers are. I have seen people live for decades without this awareness and they develop stories about their wives or about their husbands that have nothing to do with reality but have all to do with their own reality which for them is so real. There is a tiger in the room. I can't talk normally to you. I can't. All I can do is detach or scream or run. And that's what we do. Men do that all the time. You just detach, you space out, you become a shell of a man, and you're behaving like a robot because you're a mensch. But there's a lion. You are frozen. Your amygdala has frozen. I am in that space. And when you're in that space, your choices are so limited. Back to our self-love discussion on Friday. When somebody doesn't recognize this about people, to tell this person, forget about what is going on inside of you, is a, forgive the word, it's so wrong because they're suffering. This husband is suffering. This woman, this wife is suffering. And it's not their fault. He developed, his amygdala started to sound fire alarms and see lions in the room a few times a day at the age of six. And every time his spouse says something that takes him back to that space, he feels in danger and he doesn't even know it because it's so much part of his system, so much part of his life. The moment I could become aware of it and the moment I could share this with my spouse is the moment your marriage will reach a different level. Because whenever we connect our weakest points with each other, we develop the strongest relationships. You understood what I just said? Whenever I can take my weakest, most vulnerable space and you can take your weakest, most vulnerable space and instead of using that space to drift away, using that space as an invitation to bring your spouse into that conversation and say, you know, when you said this at the Shabbos table, for two hours I was not me. For two hours there was a lion in the room. And your spouse could just listen and not criticize it, make space for it. And we can share that way, then that weakest part becomes our strongest link. Because now you have taken your most traumatized dimension and brought it into the relationship. And there's nothing like bringing into the relationship your most broken parts. That's why Moses took the broken fragments of the tablets and he put it into the ark, into the Holy of Holies. And that's why the whole Torah ends with praising Moses for breaking the tablets. That's the end of the whole Torah, which we're soon going to finish on Sukkot. Because... It's only when you could bring in those parts into your relationship with your spouse, with yourself, with God, that you can really create a real geula relationship, holistic, one that is not afraid of any part of my life. And now the next time you look at your spouse or he or she looks at you, you could be fully present because even the lion in the room has been brought into the marriage, has been brought into the relationship.
next vista to a deeper marriage consciousness. In halacha, in Jewish law, it's fascinating, all these ideas, which now are becoming more and more prevalent in the psychology of relationships, if you, if you look for them, you could see them thousands of years ago in the Torah. For example, halachically, you can't make a blessing for a mitzvah after you do the mitzvah. After I blow the shofar and Rosh Hashanah, I don't make a blessing. I make a blessing before. Marriage, when a couple gets married, is sheva brachas, the seven blessings we do under the chuppah. And then for seven days. What if you didn't do it then? So Maimonides writes, you can do it even a few months later. You could do it even a few years later. Why? A bracha you do before the mitzvah, not after. So the Raga Chavagon says, listen to this, because halachically, marriage is never a one-time event. The chuppah continues every moment of your life. So even a year later, you still didn't do the mitzvah yet, because you're about to renew it. In Jewish law, the relationship is renewed every single moment. We don't do a chuppah every moment. It's called a pu'ula nimsheches. The act of the chuppah is continued, and that's why you can always make the blessing, because it's like the shofar is being blown continuously. What does this mean? Why is it that way? The answer is because a marriage is bringing together two different people. Two different people means, by definition sometimes, opposite or very different. Whenever you bring together people who are so different and you want them to be so close, you have to continuously work on it. The fact that I had oil in my candle burning, I had oil in my candle yesterday, will not allow the candle to burn today. I have to refill it with oil. I watered my plant last week before I came to Atlanta, but the plant is going to die if I don't irrigate it continuously because by definition these things have to be renewed and continued. You told your wife, I love you, last night. That's great, but it's not enough. It doesn't last for the next 27 years. The next day is a new day. Here is the deal. Not easy for many people to hear. If you leave a marriage to itself, to its own devices, naturally, the pattern is you drift away. A husband and a wife... Status quo, if they maintain the status quo, they drift away. In the beginning it's a little, and then it's further and further and further. Because we are different, we are opposites. Look at the Torah, the Balatanya writes in Shir Hashirim, a groom and a bride represent Shnei Hafachim, two opposites. He calls one water, one fire, you'll figure out who's who in your marriage. So he says, fire and water. You want to bring fire and water together, it's work. You need to bring in a pot. <laughs> to be able to synthesize between the two. The point is, people wonder. We had a wonderful vacation. The retreat was great. Yeah? I even heard one new thing, maybe. It was wonderful. But next week, we're again, we're not connected. We're fighting, or even if we're not fighting, we're, what happened? We went on a hike. We went here. It was so great. Don't get upset at yourself. That's the nature of reality in most cases. The few exceptions are recorded in novel fictions. And there are maybe a few people on earth that way. But most couples, if you just leave them to themselves, they will drift away. You have to constantly, constantly reconnect. Constantly 
remind each other that you're here for each other, that you can trust each other a thousand percent. Do not take it for granted. I once asked one of the top marriage therapists in my neck of the woods in Muncie, he's been tremendously successful with couples in the hundreds, maybe in the thousands over many years. I asked him, how fast do couples start drifting away? He said, after three hours of not connecting. So I'm like, every three hours, there's a, I love you? He's like, that's how it's supposed to be. After three hours of not connecting, they start drifting away. I'm like, this is a hopeless situation. Three hours? He's at work, she's at work, they're busy. He says, you're right. But when they come home at night, they can make up for that drifting away because it was only three hours, three hours, three hours, nine hours you could make up. But if those three hours get multiplied and then quadrupled, and now it's a week or two weeks, you're drifting more and more and more away. So couples say, we had a great marriage. We had a great first few years. You have to reconnect daily. <laughs> you have to reconnect every three hours. You know, if I meet my brother and I haven't seen him in two months, or I meet a good friend of him in two months, we sit down, we continue the conversation from two months ago, right? And the relationship is intact. But let's say you haven't seen your spouse in two months. <laughs> you sit down and your wife is just looking at you. And you're like, so let's continue where we were two months ago. No, 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 no. There's two months of separation that we have to deal with. Because the relationship is, on one hand, so deep. It's so deep. There's so much at stake in it. You're the closest person to me in my life. I need to feel that you got my back, not 99.9%. .9%. That's not marriage. I need to feel that you got my back and my front 1,000%. At least 100%. The same is the other way. You have to feel, I have your back a thousand percent. It's such a deep relation. And on the other hand, we're two separate people. In many ways, we're opposites. We have different idiosyncrasies, different mishagasin, different shtick, different insecurities, different fears, different traumas, different personalities. I love vanilla ice cream. You love chocolate. Those are the small differences. So you constantly have to re connect reinvest yourself and this means something else friends every time there is communication between a husband and wife every time they're either getting closer or they're getting a little more distant there's no such a thing there was communication and nothing happened it's too intense it's too dynamic the bases are loaded this is two people together who are different who are opposites and who are so connected and therefore could be so disconnected. No, every time there is communication with your spouse, don't delude yourself, you're getting closer or you're getting further. I'm sitting in the kitchen, drinking a coffee, a wonderful coffee, and reading a newspaper. Say I'm reading the Wall Street Journal. You nodded. Is that what you read? Good. Baruch Shekivanti. My wife walks into the kitchen. In our yard, in Muncie, it's a big forest. So we have a lot of birds that hang out. Particularly, there's a beautiful blue bird that comes to visit and a beautiful red bird that comes to visit. I'm reading the newspaper, and my wife says, why, why? Look at that story. 
stunning red bird. But I'm in the middle of my article. I'm in my cave. I'm getting angry at the writer. Right? I'm letting out my frustrations. I'm drinking my coffee. But there's a red bird on our porch. At the moment, right? You know my waffle spaghetti thing. We're not going to do that now. But in my waffle mind, I'm in the newspaper. I'm not with a bird. I'm here. I'm not there. What do I do? So one husband might say, uh, I'm in the middle of the article. Do me a favor. You know, like grunt a little bit. Uh, I'll look at it later. Another one who is much more generous and philanthropic will pick up his eyes and, you know, look at his wife, like, for three seconds. You know, he gave her that gesture. And he's back in the paper. And another one will say, really? There's a red bird on the porch? Let me look at it. And he jumps up from the chair, forgets the coffee, sends the Wall Street Journal on vacation for a few moments, and looks at that red bird. He's not only kinder, he's also wiser. Because that little communication was an opportunity for connection, which means getting closer or for distance. Every time you walk into the kitchen, every time she walks into the kitchen, he walks into the kitchen, every passing comment is an opportunity you're just going to the refrigerator to get yourself a drink. Your wife is standing at the counter or the other way around. It's an opportunity to get closer or to get a little further. Not a lot further, but a little further. Next two rules. Each one is going to have to take two minutes. The Mishnah says in the ethics, every argument for the sake of heaven will endure. Every argument not for the sake of heaven will not endure. Come on. If it's an argument for the sake of heaven, it should not endure. If it's an argument for the sake of heaven, if not for the sake of heaven, it should endure. It's not what the Mishnah says. They used to think what makes a good marriage and a bad marriage. In a good marriage, there's no arguing, no fighting. In a bad marriage, there's always fighting. True, right? It was Gottman John Gottman, who's been a therapist for 40 years and did a lot of research, interviewed thousands and thousands and thousands of couples, who showed that 69% of arguments that couples have in the first year of their marriage, even in the best marriages, they will continue to have until their last breath. That means when you are 103 and she is 101, thank you. There's a red bird. <laughs> I was just trying to illustrate, but it was bad. Okay. Thank you very much. You're 103. The man is 103. The woman is 101. You're in Palm Beach. Palm Beach. Yeah? On the hammock. Pina Colada. You will still be arguing about things you argued at your Shevabrachas. In the best of marriages. 70% of arguments will not be resolved in the best of marriages. Which means, should the window stay open or closed? Do we love the AC 
Do we hate AC? Deary restaurant, deli restaurant, a drama or a comedy? Are we going for Pesach to your parents? Or on my dead body, are we going for Pesach to your parents? Okay, I know when you're 103 and she's 101, that argument may have to change. Are we going Pesach to our granddaughter-in-law? <laughs> on my dead body. Don't make the mistake that in a good marriage you don't argue. It's a terrible mistake. Of course you argue in a good marriage. 70% of those arguments will not be resolved. In a good marriage, you know how to argue. It's never with distrust. It's with trust. It's with respect. It's with listening to the other person's point of view and making space for it, even if I don't see the world that way, but I don't see you arguing with me as a demonstration of hatred or mistrust, which is the problem. How could you argue with me again? My lion is hollering. How can you argue with me? It means you don't think I exist. You hate me. That's my lion. She doesn't hate you. She loves you. She's just sharing her experience. You may not have that experience. Can I find my wholesomeness and embrace another experience? That's the key. When you predicate a good marriage on no arguments, you're basically causing people to amputate 50% of their feelings and perspectives. A holistic ula marriage is when there's an argument for the sake of heaven, it can endure forever. We're fine. We're fine. This is such a vital point in a ga'ula marriage. The Talmud was written 1,800 years ago. We learn it. People learn it daily. There's not a page that's not saturated with arguments. They're killing each other intellectually. And it became the crown jewel of Jewish studies, of Jewish culture, of Jewish values. Why? Because it's machloikas l'shem shamayim. It's an argument for the sake of it. We cherish Beis and we cherish Beis Hillel. We love Reb Meir, we love Reb Yehuda. We are crazy about Abaya. And we love Rava. And they're always arguing. But there's an ambiance of inner wholeness and respect. Don't be afraid of disagreements. Just don't let mistrust creep into those disagreements. And by the way, it's true about the Jewish world. Jews don't have to agree with each other. Chas v'shalom if Jews start agreeing with each other. It means we all have to convert. We don't have to agree with each other. We have to be here for each other. You don't have to agree with me. I don't agree with you. We have to support each other, trust each other. That's what a marriage needs. Last point for today. In a bad marriage, the sentence begins with the word you. In a good marriage, the sentence begins with the word I. Now that's contrary to everything you learned. The narcissist begins with I, 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 I. The selfless person begins with you, you, you. So forgive me for violating that rule. But I'm saying the other way and I'll tell you why. In a bad marriage, the conversation begins with you, which is what you said yesterday was so rude. You were so insensitive. You so don't know how to X, Y, Z. 
You were really inappropriate. That tie that you chose, oh my God. You really don't know how to dress. You really need therapy. And you know what? Your mother also needs therapy. <laughs> you see how all these conversations begin with you? Everything is about you. Because I know exactly who you are, what you did, why you did it, and where you got it from. Because I know your genes. Bad marriage. Good marriage. Don't talk about you. Talk about I. I'm telling you to talk about I. I'll tell me to talk about me which is the Jackie Mason piece, right? You know that, yeah? He goes to therapy because he's looking for himself. So he tells the therapist, how are you going to help me find me when I am not even me? After two hours, the therapist says it's $300. He says, why should I pay you $300 when I'm not even me because I'm looking for me? In fact, maybe you are me, so you owe me $300. <laughs> so basically, let's be fair. We'll cut it even. You give me 150 and we'll do it fine. We'll do it fine. I don't think the therapist invited Jackie Mason back. It was such a good piece. He made a lot of Jews laugh. It was such a good piece because it's so important to be able to go there. What you said, I just want to share with you my feelings when you said this at the Shabbos table. When you said these words at the Shabbos table, this is what it felt like for me. That makes all the difference. When I tell you, you were inappropriate, you're a baby, you don't have manners, you're egotistical, you're insecure, you're whatever, all the good things that couples think about the other one. Right away it triggers defense. My defense mechanisms come up. My amygdala gets fired. Now I'm saying, really, I'm that way? Let me tell you who you are. And I bring up stories from the last 24 and a half years. And of course, she has lots of stories. He forgot, but she has. It right away goes in the wrong direction. It's right away about me defending myself and proving you wrong. In a good marriage, I don't talk about you. In fact, I'm still trying to discover who you are. <laughs> I'm curious. I'm inquisitive. I don't reach conclusions. I don't put you in a box with a lid over it. I don't know everything about you. I wonder. I ask. Most importantly, I share with you how I felt. What are you going to argue with your husband or your wife about how they felt? I'm not blaming you. I'm not accusing you. I'm sharing with you my experience. The moment we do that, we can actually learn who the other person is in a much profounder way. We can then allow our vulnerable parts to be brought into the marriage. We could then connect in the deepest of places because we're not afraid of our weakest, most vulnerable, most traumatized parts. We appreciate that's part of our journey. And for our relationships to be meaningful, that all has to be put onto the equation. That's what can help us get closer to a Gula marriage, a marriage that is holistic, integrated, and wholesome. Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.